Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast with an enticing selection of pieces from across our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on your menu this week, Russia's dissident superheroes, how climate change will affect America's GDP, and the stories and techniques behind fine art photography. But first, China's conscience was our cover line this week. Liu Jibao wasn't a particularly well-known figure in the West, but he should have been. The political prisoner who repeatedly called for democracy in China died in hospital last week from terminal cancer after a long period of neglect. His death holds a message for both China and the West, as our cover leader explained. His dignified, calm and persistent calls for freedom for China's people have made Mr Liu one of the global giants of moral dissent, who belongs with Andrei Sakharov and Nelson Mandela and, like them, is a prisoner of conscience and a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He died in a hospital, but was a prisoner in all but name. The government refused his and his family's requests that he be allowed to seek treatment abroad. The Communist Party wants the world to forget Mr Liu and what he stood for. There is a danger that it will. Over time, the West has shown both timidity and cynicism towards China's treatment of dissidents. In this case, they appear to have opted for the former. Earlier this month, leaders of the G20 group of countries, including China's president Xi Jinping, gathered in Germany for an annual meeting. There was not a peep from any of them about Mr Liu, whose terminal illness had just been made known. But Western leaders should speak out for China's dissidents like Mr Zhibao, and loudly, we argued. The blueprint for democracy, known as Charter 08, which landed him in prison, was clear in its demands for an end to one-party rule and for genuine freedoms. Mr Liu's aim was not to trigger upheaval, but to encourage peaceful discussion. He briefly succeeded. Hundreds of people including prominent intellectuals, had signed the charter by the time Mr Liu was hauled away to his cell. Since then, the Communist Party's censors and goons have stifled debate. The West must stop doing their work for them. Over now to our Europe section, which reported on rumblings of discontent coming from Russia's youth. They're brainstorming ways to oppose the country's government and creating some imaginary dissidents of their own. In a forest outside St. Petersburg this month, a group of young people discussed ideas for modern Russian superheroes. One group suggested Rainbow Man, who can change sex and sexuality, and crusades against TV Man and Bureaucrat Man. Another proposed Human Rights Man, who uses the Constitution to battle the dishonest judge. And all this was more than just idle chit-chat amongst friends. The exercise unfolded at Territory of Freedom, a camp dedicated to democratic values. 
The camp has been running for nine years, and the organizers, an activist group called Vesna, say interest is growing. Indeed, Russia's political class is resembling its communist forebears in one way: it's becoming increasingly interested in the youth. The Kremlin frets that Vladimir Putin, who will turn 65 ahead of next year's presidential elections, may not be down with the kids. Russia's parliament is considering banning children from unsanctioned political actions—a sure way to win their votes. So, from the forests on the outskirts of Saint Petersburg, we move to the inner-city woodlands of industrial Brooklyn. As an article in our United States section reported, the former navy yard there is morphing into a high-tech urban manufacturing hub, complete with greenery. Few factories have a forest in their lobby. But Cry Precision, which designs and manufactures high-tech military body armor, wanted to make its vast new premises at the Brooklyn Navy Yard calming and beautiful for its 200 employees. Many of them now practice Tai Chi among the indoor trees. This serene image is set against a backdrop of rampant construction. The Navy Yard itself is also growing fast. The 300 acres—that's 121 hectares on Brooklyn's waterfront, with panoramic views of New York Harbor and Lower Manhattan—has about 2.5 million square feet under construction, which will increase its square footage by about 60 percent. And the renovations are absorbing local talent too. The Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation, a non-profit which operates the yard for the city, routinely recruits local people, training them for the high-paying jobs available there. It also gives tenants enough leeway with their rent to allow them to invest in their companies. No small thing in expensive New York. After all that leafing through the Economist, we thought you might like a taste of our other podcasts from this week as well. In Money Talks, we discussed a new paper that established a link between climate change and America's GDP. Our free exchange columnist explained which areas of the country are likely to be worst hit as temperatures creep up. The losses would tend to be concentrated in places that are already fairly poor, and it's it's largely areas to the south and southeast of the U.S. Those states would see big declines in agricultural yields as temperatures rose. They'd be affected by increased、uh, storm activity and increased hurricanes,、uh, and then also there would be、uh, effects in terms of rising crime. And talking of crime, stitching together two animals so their blood systems integrate might sound a bit Doctor Frankenstein, or at least rather sinister. But that technique, known as parabiosis, was discussed in this week's science and technology podcast, Babbage. Our science correspondent Tim Cross explained why the rather gruesome process has been hitting the headlines in recent years. So since about 2005, there's been a steady drip of papers showing some quite impressive things. Like if you take, you know, an old mouse and a young mouse and you stitch them together like this, and then you, if you injure the old mouse's Muscles they regenerate much better and much faster than you would expect from an old animal, much more like a young one's would. So the assumption is something in the blood of the young animal is improving the sort of rejuvenating capacity of the old one. Heading back then to our print issue for a final taster of the week, and to our books and art section, which took a peek into the world of photography. As an article explained, the market isn't just about big names; it's about stories and techniques too. In a world awash with photos from two billion smartphones, a picture may still tell a thousand words, but is it still worth a thousand pounds? 
The market for photography has changed dramatically in the digital era, especially for photojournalists, commercial photographers, studio photographers and the like. Still, the market for fine art photography is looking pretty snappy. Most fine art photographs are printed in signed limited editions, normally of between 8 and 15 photos. For works made from negatives, the photographers or their estates keep tight control to ensure that no new prints can be made, which would amount to defrauding the original buyers. As the edition begins to sell out, prices rise. And whether in digital or with film, scarcity can turn some photos into prized commodities. Limited editions, which have artificial scarcity rather than inherent scarcity as with painting, Make a market in which a photograph by a superstar, shot in perhaps one-sixtieth of a second, can sell for millions. Untitled number 96 by Cindy Sherman, a self-portrait of the artist lying on a tiled floor, dressed in an orange gingham top and clutching a newspaper clipping, sold for $3.9 million in 2011. But before you try to recreate that scene at home, it's worth explaining what exactly makes a superstar photographer. With Miss Sherman, it was a turning of the lens on herself in so many arresting guises that she became synonymous with postmodern deconstruction of the image-saturated world. So the old prediction that pop would eat itself looks like it might be coming true for photography as well. Let us know your thoughts on that. But that brings us to the end of this week's Tasting Menu. If you've any more thoughts on this podcast, or indeed any of our content in audio or in print, send them to us by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.